as Eddie said earlier, this day-to-day Palm Sunday begins this week, this what we call Holy Week, a week marked with lots of massively significant events as Jesus' life and mission begin to reach their climax this coming weekend. Each day is massively significant for different reasons. The message that it shares and what it shows about the heart, the way and the perspective that Jesus has. I, I, I behaved myself. I didn't look at what I said last year about Palm Sunday until I'd written this year's one. But one of the things that I said last year was that this unfolding event that we read of here in John, in fact, this is one of the very few things that's covered in every single gospel. It is so significant. But um, last year I spoke about this as almost a prophetic theatre, what Jesus was enacting and what Jesus was doing, but I've come to to a a different view as I've done some research about what is happening in these verses and some of what is being communicated in these verses and also some of the latest understanding about some of the cultural symbols that Jesus is using in these verses. And one of the things that I I think I've come to realize is what what Jesus is doing here isn't necessarily prophetic theater. It is prophetic fulfillment. There is a declaration here that Jesus My clicker is not behaving. Is it working? I don't know. Just hang on that cliffhanger for a second to Jesus. Oh. It's not plugged in. Over there, over there. Yeah, there we go. That Jesus is king. You might have saw that coming, but that's fine. Because actually what a lot of the the more recent research is beginning to pick up on is that the display that Jesus is doing here and what he's enacting and what he's purposely doing as he enters Jerusalem isn't simply prophetic theatre. There is something very intentional about it. It's prophetic fulfillment. And one of the things that people are realizing is that the donkey, the, the colt that we, we speak of so often, and yes, it's a lowly animal. I mean, donkeys, we generally think of them as, they're, they're, they're a wee bit minging, really. They're not the, the most pleasant of creatures. Um, it's not something I don't think we'd ever want to sit on. Um, but they were actually used historically and around the time that Jesus was there by, by varying nations as a royal animal. They were an animal that kings would ride in on. Quite why, I, I, I can't say, but this was one of the cultural things that would happen. So as Jesus rides in on a donkey, he's communicating a few different things at this point, but one of the things that he is communicating to the people is a declaration of kingship. Here comes your king. As he rides in, he isn't hiding from who he is. But he's making some definite and deliberate statements about who he is. And it's a, it's a public declaration. Now, of course, we know it's, it's, it's nearing Passover time. The, the amount of people that would be entering Jerusalem around about this time and making the journey would be vast. One of the historians, Josephus, 
I don't know if I pronounced that right, but I'm not going to stress about it. I'm going to get to the fact. He speaks and he wrote lots of history about this time. He wrote about Jesus and he's one of the very strong sources about the life and the crucifixion of Jesus outside, of course, of the New Testament itself. But one of the things he says is that around about the Passover time, Jerusalem could have around about, he estimates, because surely you couldn't possibly measure it, but he estimated there was around 2.4 million people in Jerusalem around about the Passover time. Now think about that for a second. 2.4 million people are heading into the city. A fair amount of them may already be there because it's a difficult journey. You want to get a room because as we know, the rooms can be tricky to get. So you've got all these people beginning to pile in on this town. How many there was at this point, we don't know, but this city would have been filled with people. Now, if you think 2.4 million people, that's, if that's how many that was going to descend, that's half the population of Scotland almost. Half the population of Scotland that would descend on this small city. Because it was a small city, it's not like it would have been London or anything like that. So there would be masses of people. It would have been the busiest time. And then through this city, because of course there would have been rumours that Jesus was coming. But he began to hear that he's on his way. He's heading into Jerusalem and the people respond to that. They head out to see where he is coming from. The, the, the city would have been buzzing for lots of reasons, but it would have been buzzing for this reason as well, that Jesus is on his way there. So what Jesus does is a declaration. The call that he writes in on is always seen as a sign of humility. And in a lot of ways it is, and we'll touch on that in a bit. But it is also a statement of kinship. Jesus is declaring something as he enters the city that he is that promised king, the one who was to come. That's what he's doing as he rides in and there's an element of gentleness in here as well because the other option he could have rode in on would have been a horse. Now a horse would have had military connotations. It would have symbolized that Jesus was coming and that there was a potential for force. By riding in on a donkey, he is not doing that. He doesn't come with a bunch on, his, on a donkey with a bunch of chariots behind him. There is an element of gentleness as he enters this town, as the city, and as he makes this declaration. And we see this amazing thing because the people respond to it. Here is a brief moment where the people get it. They recognize and understand the statements that Jesus is making. They've heard the stories that have no doubt filled Jerusalem about this man. That he's coming. And they respond emphatically. And they welcome him. They go to him. They greet him. They make this amazing show as they lay the palm branches down and they cry, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They recognize who he is and he is welcomed in. Now it's one thing to arrive somewhere. There's quite another to be welcomed there. What we see here, at this moment, at this time, is the people welcoming Jesus. Here, 
There is a people that recognize that here is a long-awaited king, and they're crying out, Hosanna, they're welcoming him. The responses are given are messianic responses. These are verses that were used, and we read Psalm 118 earlier, and used some of these verses in our worship. These are verses that were used for the Messiah, the promised one. And here they're recognizing that Jesus is he, the one who will lead Israel and usher in that new age. And what really struck me was for this precious moment, here is the anointed king with his people. And there is a form of harmony. It may not last long, but for this moment, in rides Jesus. And the people, God's people, cry Hosanna. Welcome. Here is our King. What a precious moment that must have been. Some of the commentators say that this moment can be seen as Jesus' coronation. As he rides in, he is recognized and he is set apart as King. Celebrated as such. What a different kind of coronation it is to the ones that we celebrate in our culture. We've had our queen now for 65 years on the throne. That's incredible. Um, Which means that I think most people in this room have not seen a coronation. I haven't. And I've got a few smiles from people that obviously do remember the, the, the previous one. But we all know that ceremony and the pomp and the prestige of it and, and it's wonderful to watch I, I am actually looking forward to being able to see one because it's, it's, it's something amazing to see I'm not wishing anything on our current royal but I think it's one of these things that will be absolutely astounding to see I'm also one of these sad people that likes watching the opening of parliament, don't judge um, but this in a real sense is Jesus' coronation and it's not filled with pomp, it's not filled with ceremony, it's filled with emphatic statement of here is your king and he's riding in not with chariots and not with horses and not with power and not with might, but he's riding in on a donkey. It's a royal animal, but it's not one that emphatically screams power. It's one that just simply declares who he is. And that's important for us to realise because he's a different kind of king. Of course, stating the obvious, he is the Messiah. He is the promised king. And he's different from that perspective because he is the anointed one, the promised one. A saviour that would be sent from God, the son of God. As we know now, he is God incarnate. God in flesh in this world. And he is different because of that. Because... He sees things differently. He, he understands things differently. He knows his mission. He is God here on a mission into this world. He understands that mission. Jesus hasn't come merely to rule. He isn't riding in here for conquest, to enjoy the spoils of war like some bad Hollywood movie. That's not what he's doing here. He comes to a people that he loves to do something remarkable for them as their king. Remember that Jesus is one who has wept over Jerusalem, who has desired to gather that people in. And here he is on that mission to do precisely that. He comes as a king to liberate the people, to embrace them, and to reconcile them 
to their God. So there is differences there because he is the Messiah, because of the mission that he has come. But he's making a very emphatic statement as well about how he will function as king because he's showing a different way. And this is significant. I've already pointed out that the donkey was not the classic indicator of humility. It was a royal animal. It was a royal statement. But yet, this donkey is immediately associated with humility. And one of the reasons that that is easily done is because John immediately associates with what Jesus is doing with verses of property, property, prophecy from Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow bow, shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So as John sees Jesus ride in, he immediately gets this connotation of of a promised one that Zechariah has spoke of, who would ride in on this donkey, who would proclaim peace to the nations. These are the verses that John immediately connects with Jesus and what he's seeing is then fulfilled literally in this person as Jesus rides in on that colt. He's declaring his kingship, but he's also doing it in a way which dismisses the methods of power around him. Whereas, for what Jesus is seeking to do here, he, he, there is no might on display. No power. Not when it comes to how we would perceive it anyway. If somebody was to come riding into Ellen on a donkey, we would not firstly think, oh dear, danger. We wouldn't, because it's not threatening. If somebody was to come riding on a horse with chariots, well, we would maybe think slightly differently. We would probably think maybe somebody's filming or something. But you can see the difference. He's, there is no might on display. There's no aggression in what Jesus is doing here. There's no threats. There's no aimful leverage. What we have here is simply Jesus riding in. It's a humble act. There's nothing around him to, sh- to say anything different as he is declaring himself and as the people declare himself as king. And by doing this as Lord, he's showing actually a different way of being. He's showing a way where violence isn't the answer. Where coercion doesn't need to be resorted to. Where power isn't might, but righteousness is. He's showing a way where vulnerability is actually okay because he trusts his father. He's redefining what it means to be a king. He's redefining what power itself means. And so his kingdom stands. Soon all the weapons of the world will be thrust against him. Soon the religious people will try to smear him. Soon man will try to kill him. But yet victory will be declared. Because the weapons of this world can't stop this king. 
They can't stop his kingdom. He's redefined it and he's transcended those ways of being. So he's a king who's powerful, who's mighty. So he recognises that threats and violence aren't the ways in which God is going to establish his kingdom. God's kingdom redefines these things. It's a different way. And it's also, we have to stress it, a humble way that that's one of the key things that Zechariah is trying to tell us. Because humility isn't weakness. It isn't. Vulnerably, vulnerability isn't stupidity. Peace isn't a concession. These are the ways of our God. Zechariah says in verse 10 that this is a Messiah who's going to come and he's going to proclaim peace to the nations. He's going to take away those bows. They're going to be shattered. He declares peace. This is our Messiah. The one we have sung of this morning and said is our King. And this is what he's demonstrating before the world now. So if we think about that in our culture, this is a Messiah that's proclaiming peace in Syria. Peace in Russia. Peace in America. Peace to us. This is our King. It's a humble way, a way of peace, a different way. An exciting way, actually, as we learn about who Jesus is and how he responds to things. But we also see, John very honestly says, the disciples didn't understand. We didn't get it. We didn't get what was going on and what these things meant. The disciples didn't understand. What, what didn't they understand? They understood that Jesus was going to Jerusalem. He's told them time and time again. They understood that he was going to go in as king. They've already declared him the Messiah. What they've not really understood is why. Why he's going in. What he's going in to do. And Jesus had told them over and over. But it wasn't a message that they actually wanted to hear or to embrace. Because they had the idea of this Messiah who was going to come in, who was going to be victorious, who was going to be powerful, who was going to drive out the Romans, who was going to establish the nation of Israel again, who was going to lead them and usher them into this new age of glory and prosperity. And here they would have thought, this is it. This is the moment. This is what we went all in for. This is what we've given up our lives for. This is what we've left our families behind for. He's going in. This is the moment in which we can experience the fulfillment of that hope that we have. In some ways, we could say they expected the Messiah who would use the methods of this world to bring their their liberation. But Jesus wasn't going to do that. He was going to use his own. So they had their own expectations which led to them kind of missing the point here. They had their expectations of what Jesus should do. What he would do. And I think they still, even though Jesus had tried to teach them what he would do, they still thought they knew best. They still hoped 
that what they desired would be what Jesus would ultimately do. They didn't understand. They didn't understand at this point. They had their expectations and they found it very difficult to let them go. So we could ask that question then, what changes after the resurrection? It tells us that it was only when Jesus was glorified that they understood. What do they understand? They understand at that point Jesus was never resistant to being their king. He was never resistant to being the Messiah. He was never resistant to what God had willed for his life and what God had called him to do. He was that promised king in every way that it was said that he would be. They understood that God wasn't using the ways of our world. That he was redefining what power represented. We would see in the later writings that they would understand that weakness can be strength. That the cross could be a symbol of weakness and shame for so long could become a symbol of salvation and the very wisdom of God. They would understand these things, but it took that resurrection to get them to that place where they realized at last that everything Jesus had said, everything he'd shown them, everything he had taught them, did come to pass. He was the king. He is the king. And he achieved everything that he had set out to achieve. What changed? What changed is they understood that God will accomplish his purposes. That God's ways are not always man's ways. That what he has promised, he will bring to pass. And because of that, they and we can trust what God says to us. I said at the beginning, we, we share with these people, these words, this moment, as Jesus is recognized as the king, as the people cried out, Hosanna, that Jesus is Lord. Today we sing these words out. There is recognition here that Jesus is that Messiah, that he is the king of Israel, the king of the world, that he is our king as we sit here this morning. But one of the things I've been pondering is to, is to, to what end? That phrase, Jesus is Lord, it's the most significant phrase that we can actually declare. With it we place our trust in him. With it we recognize and declare that he is the Messiah. With it we put our lives in our hands. We declare our allegiance to his kingdom, to his ways. And we declare an end to following some of the more hostile and difficult ways that our world tries to do things. We declare Jesus as Lord and that we will seek to live according to his ways. What does that mean for us? It means that we go his way. Even if it doesn't always seem 
to us the best way or the right way. His way, as we're reminded in these verses, is a way of humility. Not one seeking or grasping at power. It's a path which can bring vulnerability. And vulnerability isn't always pleasant. It can leave us exposed. It can, as the name says, it can leave us feeling vulnerable. It takes us to a place where we have to trust God as Jesus did. It's a path of righteousness where we seek to live faithfully to God above all else, even if that cost is high. To what end is Jesus Lord? To make it an end in which we adopt his ways, his ethics, his principles and trust him with what he says about our lives and sometimes that can take us into uncomfortable places and it did for Jesus as well. I want to stress as well that what for me is is really pressing and really key and what I really wanted to remind us of is that what Jesus is aiming for with us is that we each have a life with Christ. That as we see with the disciples, that we walk with him through the moments of our lives. That we live with him. That we get to know him. Don't assume that you know everything about Jesus. You know what makes him tick. You know what he's going to do. He's one that will surprise us as he surprises the disciples here. He will surprise us at times as well. Engage with him. Spend time with him. For we must learn not simply to love him, but also to walk in his ways. And at times, they're going to be offensive to our culture. At times, we may feel vulnerable because of them. At times, we might feel foolish. But what niggled at me was, if we're not wise, if we're not close to our God, at key moments, we might find ourselves in the wrong crowd. Not with that crowd to cry, Hosanna. Hosanna. But with that crowd that gathers on the Friday instead. And we might not be saying, crucify, crucify. But we might be saying instead, death to his ways. I don't want them. It's foolish. It makes me vulnerable. The cost potentially isn't worth it. And this is why I end with a simple message of draw close to our God. After unfolding weeks of Holy Week, one of the things that comes through consistently is Jesus' desire and God's desire to connect to each and every one of us. The, the, the barrier there is in here. Draw close to him. Make time for him. Make space for him. 
let those precious moments grow and shape in us a and love for our God. Because costly moments will come. Moments will come when to live like Jesus makes us look like foolish people. It's important we do things and have a focus on him that ensures that we're in that right crowd. This is our king. This is his way. This is what he demonstrates to us this morning. As the Holy Week begins, his determination to reconcile this world to himself, but to do it according to his terms. And as he does so, he redefines so many things. So know him, live for him, love him. And let's make sure we are in that crowd that consistently acknowledges that he is the son of David. He is our Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to these verses, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks for the life of Jesus, for his passion for each of us, for his love for this world and the people, every person that will live and breathe and share moments on it. We give you thanks this morning that this, these verses, this story, is the beginning of Holy Week. The beginning of that declaration of what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord of this world and the hope that that would infuse and inject into this world. Lord, help us to reflect in our hearts what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord. Is it something that we say and declare with our own set of expectations? Or are we open to you surprising us and us being wrong about things at times? Help us to be faithful. Not by legalism, but by a passionate love for you. Lord, help us as we reflect throughout this coming week the ways and the methods of Jesus take a more understanding of what his ways and lifestyle demonstrates to each of us, but also to take a real hope of what he was willing to embrace and endure so that we could know you as our God and Father. Help us always to remember that the gospel is what you have done for us, but that you have transformed us. You are transforming our hearts, our minds, our ethics, our principles, our ways of understanding what accomplishment and even success mean. So help us this morning to be a people that are transformed by the renewal of our minds. Bless us and give us your Holy Spirit in abundance to give us wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to close by...